where nobody knows your name is not filmed in front of a live studio audience. But bye, I'm getting this episode together and I'm sticking it in your face. That's what I'm doing with this episode. <laughs> That's uh, very kind, James. <laughs> it's an aggressive start. <laughs> it's what it's, it's an aggressive, hot and sweaty start as well. That's just the way I like it. <laughs> this is, is a parody of the phrase, I'm getting my act together and taking it on the road. This episode uh, premiered on the 7th of February, 1991. It was directed by Andy Ackerman and written by Dan Staley and Rob Long. I like this episode. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. There's, I don't think there's been many in season nine, which I haven't been a fan of. There seems to be a nice through line of stories going on that each episode contributes in some way to. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, this one definitely continues where we were. And also, as we'll find out, tries to pull it back to normality in some way as well. Yes, yes. Shall we start with the cold open? I would love a cold open. It is very humid here at the moment. Yes, in this, I'm not going to do it because I can't reach those vocals. But in the summer nights, you know, but like a proper job, you can imagine it, that Travolta scream as he hits the iron <laughs> nights. That's, uh, that's what we're feeling inside, isn't it? Just screaming oh, at the weather. <laughs> yeah, it's been a uh, sweaty old weekend. The cold open. Now, here is what I've described it as because of the old, uh, what I was told it meant. But the and here is the people trick with the hands. Have you heard mm. of this? Yeah, the uh, s- steeple. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Okay, open up inside, and here are the people. Yeah, and Cliff's doing this, and they're all just showing. They're all just showing various parlor tricks. I think I'd call them with their fingers. Yeah, and Woody follows with the the old slide the tip of the finger off. Yeah, I don't think he actually does it. <laughs> I don't think he does it right. I think, yeah, it doesn't look like he's sliding his digit off at all, does it? He kind of does it with a bit of a clumsy thumb. Mm. Um, So it's not perfect, but it is his trick after all. And Lilith arrives uh, during the Woody show and asks what's going on and then competes with the boys. Yeah, she at first calls it sophomoric activity. And then she has her own trick which is shoving her own fist inside her mouth. Yeah, something which obviously the actress herself can do. There's no VFX in these days. <laughs> yeah, what's all your CGI budget on? Just making it seem as though BB can shove her own fist in her mouth. Right, all right then. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's impressive, I have to say. It is. I think it's because she's quite a slight woman, isn't she? She has thin hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying it right now, and I must admit, I could, I've got a small mouth. I had a lot of teeth pulled out when I was younger. I've got quite large teeth, so as a result, I just end up biting my hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, those teeth are there to snack with, aren't they, James? Yeah. Tell you who couldn't do this: Freddie Mercury. He's got. He had big teeth. He did. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely getting in the way of that hand. Then she writes a note, and they think, "Oh, she's going for bonus points." <laughs> And uh, it turns out she's writing a note to say, my hand is stuck. 
<laughs> take me to the emergency room. And which is obviously something that's happened before. Frasier responds quite nonchalantly to that and just leads her out. Confirms it happens more often than you'd think. <laughs> <laughs> Another small window into their existence. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Life in the Crane household. <laughs> <laughs> so how does our episode kick off for real, then, James? Bar is low on ingredients. The main one of which vermouth is always missing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Carla is uh, complaining that she can't get anything, any stock for the drinks. And it's because uh, Rebecca has locked herself in the store cupboard. Yes, which as we know from a previous episode is where they keep the reserves of, you know, like your red wine or things. Ingredients which don't need to be kept cold. So you can Mm -hmm. just stock them on shelves. Red wine being one, uh, vermouth, sherry Mm -hmm. probably doesn't need need to be kept cold. Some sherry. Gin? Yeah. Yeah. Vodka? We could do this all day, James. Yeah. Well, but let's not. What The one thing which does need to be kept cold, though, is clam juice. You wouldn't want to leave that out on a hot day, would you? No. And that's precisely the thing Carla serves <laughs> in substitute for an order. Yeah. You like clams. <laughs> that, that sounded almost like Jerry Seinfeld in B movie. You like jazz? <laughs> um, you like clams, Barry? I have had clams a couple of times. Oysters, I've had. Yeah, similar thing. I like a chowder or a chowder. I haven't had it often, but I do like it. It's it's got quite a specific taste, though. Mm, I must admit, I've, I've had it once, and that was on in San Francisco near the bridge. The Golden Gate? Well, within viewing distance of the bridge, not really Comparatively near. near. Actually, very close to Alcatraz. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's probably in viewing distance of Alcatraz because it's isolated. Isn't it? Yeah. Unless I was making my own chowder on the go. Travel chowder. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of a martini, Carlos serves Paul clam juice and... He seems a little annoyed, but he still seems happy to drink it. Yeah. Now, you said yourself that you had a a possibly poorly cooked chicken the other day. Last, as of recording, last evening, last night, yeah. Yeah, I think clams would take you a little further than the chicken might. Clams, I think, would be a pretty instantaneous reaction. I guess you'd call him my, my father, nor my sister's fiancé's father. And by my sister's fiancé being my brother-in-law, I would assume his dad is my father-in-law. One would assume. (laughs) Uh, But he spoke about when he had a seafood platter, right? When he was at this, you know, restaurant somewhere. Because it was a winter day, they had the fires on in the restaurant, you know, the fireplaces. And he felt ill quite soon after eating it. But he knew other people who had dined there and hadn't had the issue and we think because he was sitting next to the fireplace it was cooking the seafood while it was in his stomach you know and as a result yeah basically he uh made him an off stew inside himself yeah initially that story reminded me of um, monty python's meaning of life where a group of Revelers at a dinner party, surprised to see death arrive at the dinner and then lead them all up into heaven by pointing to the fish as the cause of all their deaths. And it's only on the way to heaven that one of them says, but I didn't eat the fish. (laughs) 
I do like those little sides you get in Monty Python. A, a classic one being, you are all individual. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I, I did want to have my own fish-based food poisoning um, from kissing a sea lion. Oh, well, I blame the sea lion for this. Oh, I do. Yeah, it was uh, definitely the sea lion's fault. I went to a, a zoo in Seville and as part of that, they had an exhibit where you could come up and a sea lion was performing tricks and they invited me up. And one of the tricks was that it would give you a, a peck on the cheek, but it turns at the last minute to kiss you on the mouth. And in my haste, because we were leaving, I didn't wash me or anything else and ate a meal straight afterwards and immediately whited out on the side of a motorway in sort of 40 degree heat. <laughs> That sea lion was, I think, having some pride and schadenfreude <laughs> at what it's done to you and no doubt countless other tourists. Yeah, that's how sea lions are going to take over the world. Just slowly food poisoning everyone. Yeah, through mouth to mouth. Yep, through what we perceive as a gesture of affection, but it's actually a cunning Machiavellian ploy. <laughs> you know what they're like. See? Yeah. We haven't even got past the clam. Fraser enters with a bookie book, doesn't he? He does, which he's very proud of. He spent a good deal of money on this uh, and a, a book event that he went to. Woody is less impressed mm -hmm. uh, and instead shows him his library card to demonstrate what he could get on a budget. You can get books for free, <laughs> Dr. Crane. You just have to return them. And to be honest, to a non-collector, he's got a very good point. Ultimately, what is it that makes a book worthwhile? I like collecting books and, and DVD, CDs, you know, physical media mm. as opposed to digital media. Maybe I'm a bit of an old soul that way. However, I am not too concerned about getting a first edition of a book because if it is a first edition, I wouldn't read it because it would damage it. You know, mm. I'm happy to get a modern edition of it and read it nonetheless, you know. You know, that's why charity shop or uh, thrift shops, I'm happy to go there and get secondhand copies of books because the text is the same, you know. Exactly. So um, I can understand collectors. I'm just not a collector myself. I don't, I neither want the stuff nor do I have space to store it. So that is the difficulty. I have a digital copy of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. And the reason I have this as a digital copy is because it's massive. <laughs> Seven novels, right? Each of which a few hundred pages each. But basically, it's, they're all volumes of the same story. And mm. as a result, it's, I want to say, three or four times the length of War and Peace. And I'm like, I, I'd get the digital copy because if you buy them individually, it's £70. And I'm like, I'd rather just get the digital copy for £8. <laughs> and have you read this book, James, or series of books? I have read some of it, but as I said, I am, I'm happy to get the digital version because I'm not spending as much to have the text on mm. it, you know. But interestingly, the one that Frasier gets is free to read anyway due to IP. Yeah, a lot of them have lapsed, haven't they? Yeah, well, he reads, uh, he was brought in Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And because Charles Dickens, I would want to say, is a... Victorian author. So as a result, the copyright has lapsed on it and it's free to read. 
this was the early 90s, so couldn't have read it as easily on the internet, I suppose. Hmm. But uh, yeah, the, you know, there's a whole Gutenberg printing press thing. Change the world, James. All of these old classics you can now read for free. I again bought a digital copy of 100 horror stories because there were so many horror stories written back then that I have a compendium of them uh, for free because the public domain. Yeah, you can definitely see the difference in writing. That there's and and some odd traits of those older books, be it you know slightly insensitive language or backwards views, what we now believe as backwards views. It's really interesting reading them, but some of it makes for uncomfortable reading. It does. To me, it's always interesting to look at the origins and influences of mm. various narrative devices, tropes, styles. And Charles Dickens is a good example of that. You know, a lot of prestige dramas now are influenced by the likes of Charles Dickens in that it's long form storytelling, because back then uh, Dickens and Conan Doyle would publish chapters in The Strand, you know, week by week, month by month. And over time, it builds into a much bigger story. And you can definitely see that in not just prestige dramas, but in the likes for soap operas and things, you know, how to create engagement uh, week on week. And, and here we are reviewing a, a classic TV show in much the same way. Yeah, there you go. Interesting stuff. Absolutely. We've seen Frasier with his book. Rebecca emerges after Sam tries to get the door open with his toolbox and fails miserably, stabbing his finger in the process. Rebecca comes out in a wedding dress with a Band-Aid for his finger. Easy as that. Well, he tries to open the door using a um, plasterer's trowel, and that, that slices your finger, doesn't it? It's uh, got a, got a, quite the blade, does that. Yeah, it needs to slip under uh, your... Uh, well, I, I'd use it for slipping under wallpaper. That might show my ignorance. Well, it's to apply plaster, isn't it? It is, but I'd, I'd still use it beforehand <laughs> to get the wallpaper off. I, I want to... As few tools as possible for something I'm not going to do very often. Steamer could be quite good to get wallpaper off. Yeah, but I've just done it recently. And I just gently soaked the wall and and that did the job. I told you about, uh, I'll call him my uncle. He's, again, an estranged relative of sorts. Who are all these people just hanging around your family, James? <laughs> he's, he's my mum's stepdad's nephew. Right. But he's... He's like a artist and interior decorator and things, works with Pink Floyd and designing their offices, but <laughs> to his house once. And he has like this little gazebo in the, in the garden, little tent type thing. We looked at this tent and on the inside, it was like a Jackson Pollock painting. I mean, what's going on here? And while he was painting a bench, so he accidentally spilled uh, some blue paint in the corner. And it's a tiny speck, you know, no one would have noticed if he hadn't pointed it out. So I figured once I'd spoil that, I may as well make it all blue splash. And he just threw the <laughs> painting up at the ceiling. And then sold it for millions. No, no. Like it's just his. It's like in the, the tent is his, but it's just various paint splashes over the inside because you could tell he spilled a speck of paint and then went, fine, splash it is. <laughs> just, <laughs> nice guy. Uh, <laughs> very erratic. <laughs> oh, dear. So Rebecca is... Feeling down in the dumps. Yeah. She's not seeing the point of things. She thinks she's a failure. Nothing left to live for after Robin has left. 
and uh, she wants to sit there. She jumps onto Norm's stool. Yes. And uh, says she wants to spend the rest of her life there. I've never sat here before. Here I am, sitting on this stool, knowing my life is a mess. I have no future, and I'm a totally hopeless failure. Yeah, try it with beer nuts. <laughs> it is all my fault. I mean, I got what I deserved. And now I'm alone. I, I have nothing, and I'm just a, you know, worthless, shallow person. I'm telling you, try it with the beer nuts. <laughs> Rebecca, I realize you haven't sought my professional advice, but I think it's time to get some perspective. Take a look at yourself. Splash some water on your face and get a fresh start. I'd like to, Frazier, but I seem to have lost the will to move. I just want to sit here for the rest of my life. Maybe it's a stool. And at this point, Frazier uh, goes back to his Dickens and he compares her to Miss Havisham in Great Expectations. Yeah, now I've, I have not read nor seen any adaptation of Great Expectations. No, neither have I. No, I think, right, I think we can say at the same time, the Dickens story that everyone has read or seen some version of. Shall I do a countdown? Because we all know what it is, isn't it? Go on then. Three, two, one. Christmas. Oliver Twist. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, you fooled me. I was going to say Christmas Carol. Oliver Twist. I doubted myself for a second there. Well, we had two different answers, both of which more well known than Great Expectations and Tale of Two Cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least in the the actual content, definitely heard of both numerous yes. times. Yeah, yeah. Cue a nice section where the bar punters. Um, don't know what this book is. Frazier tries to explain and uh, can only convince them by explaining it's got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in it. Her walking around in that wedding dress was just a tad too Miss Havisham for me. (laughs) Who? Miss Havisham, famous character from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, spends the entire novel walking around in her wedding dress. What? Yes. Well, surely you know it. It's Great Expectations. Pip! Miss Havisham, Magwitch, and uh, and four pizza-loving turtles who practice martial arts in the sewer. Cowabunga! People don't realize that that was a comic book first. Which, again, public domain, do what you want. <laughs> For example, a, uh, I may have told you this, a friend of mine, as a present to his girlfriend once, did an audiobook of the portrait of Dorian Gray, right? Like he read the whole book as an audiobook for her, which is nice, you know? Mm-hmm. But he inserted <laughs> a character from uh, essentially a black exploitation stereotype into the story, which went every so often, it's this very Oscar Wilde Victorian dialogue, and then this random Harlem local <laughs> into the story <laughs> to question everything that's going on. And Amazing. no one... No one acknowledges that he doesn't speak like any of the other characters. <laughs> That's quite the effort to go for. Um, and the fact that he made the whole audiobook, I was like, I'm impressed. <laughs> you know, I'm not dating this man, but even I'm impressed by the work there. Oh, I hope that was appreciated. I think she loved it. I think she was surprised and baffled, but they were both quirky enough to appreciate it. You know? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 
Well, uh, Rebecca leaves. Goes into the pool room. She's wearing the wedding dress. Uh, and then Woody goes off to the pool room you know, to check on her. She asks him to come. And uh, she goes off there. And then Rebecca seems to have pulled herself together. Yeah. She returns dressed in entirely different clothes. Yeah. Um, clothes that very, look very familiar. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yet somehow don't fit her well, but do fit her. Yeah, enough that you'd think they're definitely not the same clothes. Yeah, yeah. But this is a bit where I I really wanted Woody. So Woody now returns after Rebecca leaves for a drive. Yeah. Um, Woody returns clutching the the wedding dress that Rebecca was wearing against his waist. Yeah. Waist essentially naked. Otherwise. Yeah. I would. I wanted it. I thought it'd be funnier if he'd just walked in in a full wedding dress. As if that clothes swap was perfectly normal to Woody. Yeah, uh, if he, as he thought this would be the more dignified way to return to <laughs> <Yeah>. the bar. <laughs> so Woody has no clothes of his own, so he borrows some from the Lost and Found. Yeah, which I've never rummaged through a Lost and Found, but I doubt I'd find clothes which would fit me. Oh, I've I've rummaged through Lost and Found many times at school. I was particularly forgetful. I would forget my tie almost every day. And once even forgot my shoes. I wore my slippers to school. But I would forget my gym kit endlessly. And they'd make me put together some concoction of clothes from the lost property each time. Ah, we had different upbringing. If we for, if, so, <laughs> if, what, if I forgot my gym kit or if someone else at school forgot their gym kit, they just say, well, you either have to you know, do sports in your school uniform or not do sports. Probably they didn't realize that uh, the gym kit wasn't forgotten. It was intentionally not bought in the first place and the child just didn't want to do sports. Which is very common at that age. Very common. uh, And unless you were taking sports uh, in a level into high school or A-levels or thing, you're not going to be graded on it. So... Worst is that you get the teacher saying to the parents, well, they seem like a nice kid, but they don't participate in sports. And the parents will go, correct. <laughs> Just, <laughs> they know they know their kid isn't a sporty kid. What else are you going to do? You know? Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah we did have a different... I, I'm envious of your upbringing. I was... Uh, it almost felt like I was in for 10 lashes if I didn't do exactly what the sports teacher said. Uh, no, but, lashes were taken out when I was in school. <laughs> Um, so yes we've got uh, Woody now dressed in full super fly (laughs) super fly yeah very sort of flash 1970s gear actually looks very 1950s teddy boy I know what you mean yeah yeah Um, but yeah he looks very swish high trousers big lapel uh, bit of a suede suit look going on I don't think it's a bad look it's just clearly for someone bit larger than him yeah yeah he does look a bit outside um and who do they belong to uh, apparently it's property of c clavin yes cliff looking swish in his early days yeah they proceed to tell the story of how a full outfit was dropped in the lost and found <laughs> yeah and it's a bit creepy um, Clavin was quite the um, exhibitionist in his younger days. 
It was the 70s, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Woody's act of kindness reminds Frasier of another Dickens novel. When the rest of the bar don't recognise the book he's talking about, he decides it's time to educate them. And this is when he starts to read A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, but noticing that their boredom very quickly setting in, he, uh, he improvises a little. I am going to read to you Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities, and you will see just how much fun great literature can be. Oh, uh, <laughs> book the first. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Which was it? <laughs> Just stay tuned, North. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. Boy, this Dickens guy really liked to keep his butt covered, didn't he? <laughs> there was a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. And... And... And there was a bloodthirsty clown who beckoned innocent children into the sewer and swallowed them whole. <laughs> ah, that's a neat trick. Aping Stephen King's It, which I imagine was probably quite popular at the time. Uh, Stephen King's It was released in 86, so only five years before this. I believe the miniseries was 1990. Oh, yeah, and that, that caused a bit of a stir when it came out as well. I loved that as a kid. The Tim Curry one, yeah. I think that it hasn't aged well, not in terms of attitudes, because a lot of the story is about various prejudices. Mm. But uh, stylistically and and stylishly, if that makes sense, uh, how the characters look and how it is shot hasn't aged well, as well as, you know, dodgy CGI. (laughs) Yeah, but Tim Curry is excellent. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually really enjoyed the modern versions. I liked part one and I liked the first half of part Mm. two, but they changed up the ending and I thought the ending was silly. (laughs) Yeah. I'd I'd agree with that. But the creativity uh, behind the clown was incredible in the latest ones. Makeup did a a fantastic Mm. job on Bill, didn't they? Yeah. And all the sort of uh, twisting and turning and the differences in size and things like that. I thought, fantastic. What is your favourite opening line in the Dickens novel? Honestly, this is the only one I know. Probably there's something at the start of Christmas Carol, isn't there, that's in every... Marley was dead to begin with. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Do you know any others? I assume something like, oh, I gov, you hear about this guy, David Copperfield? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, brace yourselves for the next 700 pages. It's a right laugh. <laughs> you do cockney excellently, James. <laughs> Verbatim. is uh... <laughs> This is when we get a phone call from Rebecca. Yeah, she's on a flight. She she's is. She's already miles away. It is 30,000 feet above Pittsburgh. And, uh, of course, uh, Sam's wondering how on earth she afforded that. And uh, luckily, she had... Woody's wallet uh, in his clothes. So she's been sponging off him for a little bit. Well, yeah, but Rebecca does say, essentially, Mama needs some new clothes. (laughs) Yeah. 
Woody is going to get rinsed, which is quite sad, really, because he's probably the poorest member of the bar. He's certainly the one who's had the least time to earn money. But then again, Sam has made some financially bad decisions in his time. Oh, hasn't he just? We've seen a few of them in the show. Rebecca's on her way home. She's decided she's had enough. She wants to forget all about the five years at Boston and she wants to get on with her life. So she's off. I understand, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, what's she got to go back to after all? Meanwhile, Phaedra is uh, leading the end of Tale of Two Cities, um, which makes me question how quick a reader he is. I know he you know, embellished and changed a lot of things in Tale of Two Cities, but he's read a whole book in what I assume is, to be fair, they are at Cheers all the time. So it may have only taken him a couple of days, you know? Yeah. And actually I didn't, continuity wise, I didn't check the clothes. Um, but this episode stretches over some time. Because over Rebecca, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca has time to leave and as we'll find out, come back again. He then announces the next book in this uh, Dickens book club. It's uh, David Copperfield. Uh-huh. I look forward to seeing how his impressions stack up to yours, James. Yeah, yeah. I don't actually know what the opening line of David Copperfield is. I can find out. Ooh, it's quite good. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. Certainly sets things up nicely. You've also got, uh, to begin my life with the beginning of my life, I recall that I was born, as I have been informed and believe, on a Friday at 12 o'clock at night. Yeah, he's got a, got a certain panache, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah, I do need to go back to some of the old classics. Uh, I, I quite like uh, Dickens' style of writing. Yeah. Yes, David Copperfield next. And how does he describe uh, David Copperfield to... Those in the bar, what's it about? Uh, about essentially a buddy cop drama where mm-hmm. they find that their bodies have been switched and dismembered and strewn across fields. <laughs> sounds intriguing. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like a, a true detective series. It sounds like some Scandi noir. Mm, yeah. Frazier was ahead of his time. He was, yeah, yeah. So Sam calls Rebecca's parents because he wants to leave her a nice message. Mm-hmm. But it gets a bit out of hand. Come on, let's yeah. uh, let's give her a call here. I got her parents' number here. Okay. Let's just tell her that we, you know, we're thinking about her and that we care. Oh, hell, it's your parents' machine. I hate these things. I never know what to say. Hi, this is Sam from Cheers. Uh, this message for Rebecca. Um, hi, Rebecca. We just want to find out if you're okay and tell you that we all miss you and I love you and I hope that... Oh, what? what? You love her? No, I I, I didn't say that. Hold on a second. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) No, no, I said said we miss her and we love her. You said we miss her and you love her. Yeah, but but it was implied that you miss her too. Well, shit, I, I, I don't want her to get the wrong impression here. Um, hi, Rebecca. Listen, when I said that I love you, I, you know, I didn't mean love, love. I, uh, you know, I meant more like a friend, you know, a buddy, a pal, uh, like a partner, you know, like the t- two cops and David Copperfield. Okay, honey? Did you... Well, anyway, bye-bye. Wait, no, you... Wait, hold on. That was a little cold. Yeah, you know, listen, she's, uh, she's feeling kind of low. You can't just kick her when she's down like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Sweetheart, when, when I said that I love you, I, you know, I meant that you're a, a very important part of my life, you know, along with a lot of other people. It, it's, um, you know, it's like my, my life is this big jigsaw puzzle and you are a very important part, you know, like a corner piece, huh? All right. All right. Uh, hold on. Oh, God, I think the guys want to say something here. Go ahead. Yeah. Sammy loves you. You've gone messed up, Sam. Yeah. Here's a fun fact of another time where uh, a Ted Danson character messed up. And it's related to David Copperfield because Ted Danson's first film role was as Detective Ian Campbell in The Onion Field, a true story of two cops who were kidnapped and taken to a deserted field where his character, Campbell, is executed. Ooh. So it's similar to how Frazier described David Copperfield. Mm, interesting. He thinks that Rebecca's on her way back. They get a message, don't they? Uh, yeah. Saying that she's realised what she's missing. And Sam is worried because he thinks that she loves him back and is coming because of his message. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's found a steakhouse where they have beautiful waitresses in tiny little wench outfits. And, and his uh, tipple of choice from said restaurant was one of said waitresses. The food he doesn't care less about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Sam. Oh, you and your ways. Never hit on the staff, Sam. There's a, there was a, um, was it McDonald's? It might have been KFC. I saw an advert recently. It was a, a, uh, international advert for, I think it was McDonald's where someone queued for a burger and then flitted eyes at the, the girl behind the counter who, um, seemed to reciprocate. And then the guy essentially stalked her for the next couple of days until, um, asking her out and there was a huge complaints that that's not what we want if we're staff working in a we don't want to be hassled all the time and, and you say this was an advert for mcdonald's it was an advert for one of the bigger uh takeaway companies what a strange way to advertise your restaurant yeah wasn't it just come and try it on him with our staff mm, very um, strange yeah so in light of Rebecca coming back, Sam has devised a plan Z. Now, I immediately predicted how plan Z was going to go, partially because I've seen the episode before, but also... <laughs> that's, because, not, that's not predicting, James. <laughs> but also, it, I think this is the first time you watched the episode, but it seemed, I think it seemed pretty predictable based on just a lot of sitcom tropes. Yeah, I, I must admit I didn't predict it. I, I didn't try to either, but it surprised me very briefly. But as soon as it, I became aware of what was going on, then the rest became fairly standard, really. So plan Z is Sam sends a man out of the bar with instructions to wait for the lights to flash. And in comes Rebecca. And what is it she wants? The bar. Yeah, she wants the bar, not Sam. She wants to buy the bar off Sam. <laughs> ah, the turntables. Yeah. But this actually gets quite glossed over. Yeah. It's then forgotten about because Sam is in the middle of his... Ruse. Yeah, he's activated Plan Z already uh, and now must go through with it. Can you explain to us a little about how Plan Z works, James? He's hired Leon to help, and we'll talk about the cast in a bit, but he's hired... Leon to help with Plan Z. Uh, and it's the plan of 
which happens a lot in Sam's life, of what to do when there's a woman who is attracted to him and is trying to court him, but he does not want a sustained relationship. So basically, he's pretending that Leon is his long-term secret lover. Yeah, which is fooling no one, especially Rebecca, who knows Sam. It's a bit of a strange ploy. It's like, but Sam, we've slept together. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca calls his bluff, forces them to kiss. Otherwise, Sam is a wussy little fraidy cat. Which is such an odd thing to say, to say that, ah, this just seems like a ruse for you not to be with me. And you're just scared that you don't want to say it. And at that point, you would have just been like, yeah, you're right, Rebecca. I don't want to be with you. If you don't care, then neither do I. (laughs) Yeah. This is the whole reason I set up this ruse. Yeah. It just didn't make sense to me, really. But I think it's a pride thing. On Sam's part or the writer's? Uh, Sam, Sam's part, where if I was in that situation, not that I'd have a plan Z, but if I had a plan Z to avoid an unrequited attraction and then it was revealed that there was no attraction to worry about being unrequited, then I'm like, oh, abandon plan Z then. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but it wouldn't be as funny, I suppose. That's true. How dare I use logic in a bar? (laughs) Sam uh, kisses Leon. Leon punches Sam and then says, I'll see you next week for uh, golf. golf, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Very silly. And then that's the end of our episode, apart from one final line from Frasier, who uh, says his next book reading is going to be The Pickwick Papers, to which there is an audience laugh. And I had to look up Pickwick Papers to see why this might be relevant. But I understand it's a novel about a romantic misunderstanding between a man and his landlady. Ah, that's clever. Mm. Along with being a series of short stories. Um, But I think there's an underlying plot that runs through them. Yeah. Another fun fact. Well, a fact. This is the third and last time. Uh, Sam has a bloody nose, the first time being Showdown Part 2 and the other being How to Win Friends and Electrocute People. Mm. Uh, yeah. You never see Sam's bloody nose again. Mm, yeah. Sorry, viewers. Uh, we know that's your, that could be one of your favourite parts, but it'll never happen again. <laughs> Before we get on to the inevitable trivia, let's talk about the cast. B.B. Newirth as Dr. Lilith Sternan. Jeff McCarthy as Leon. He also appeared in The Equalizer, Freddy's Nightmares, Matlock, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Robocop 2, Hunter, Doogie Howser, MD, L.A. Law, Star Trek Voyager, Animaniacs, Love Monkey, All My Children, The Good Wife, Elementary, Red Dead Redemption 2, Joker, The Devil All the Time, Severance, and many more. Paul Wilson as Paul Craypence, Jangan Boyd as Stewardess. She also appeared in CBS School Break Special, a chorus line, assassination, outlaws, Harry's Hong Kong, Steel Justice, Sisters, and Silk Stockings. Lee Allen, Susan Vance, Don Bennett, Joan Carey, Alexis Crawford Ticketon, Jay Crimp, and Linda Herrick are all uncredited as bar patrons. What's that noise, James? Oh, I think it's trivia. All right, Cliff. Yeah, you've come from the library. Well, that's nice. Mm, what's he wearing? He's wearing the best 70s outfit I've ever seen. Oh, I bet he looks slick. He does. Travolta will be very jealous of you, sir. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, what's that you've got in your little lapel there? Oh, it's trivia. Big lapels, 
means big facts. <laughs> Would you like to go first or second, James? I'd like to go first. But as usual, before we open our letters, we have to give a shout out to our norms on Patreon. So this goes out to Treb Curry. If you want that special norm treatment, then check out our Patreon page for that and so much more. Which ingredients is Carla missing at the start of the episode? Oh, well, I think you might have mentioned vermouth earlier. Yes. And that's it. There's gin, vermouth, cherries and lime juice. At the cold open, they do their finger tricks. What name does Cliff give to uh, that session? He calls it the annual Tricks with Digits exhibition. Yes, very good, James. What kind of screw does the handle to the office have? A flat head. It is. Because Sam brings himself along a uh, Phillips. That's true. Hence why he uses the uh, plastering trowel, because it's flat. Mm-hmm. When Frazier mentions Great Expectations and Miss Habersham, in order to try and convince the punters to recognise the book, what other characters does he mention from it? Magwitch. Yeah. And the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes, and one more. Malaprop? No, it's Pip. Oh. Um. When Woody puts on the clothes out of the lost property, Norm compares him to someone. Who is it? It's um, David Cassidy's character in the Partridge family. That's right. Keith Partridge. Keith, Very that's good. what it is, yeah. Well, that's, that's me done. I'm triviaed out, James. Me too, yeah. And with that... Hark, is that the last call? <laughs> it seems to be. It is the hour that our drinks have fled. What say you be our house special? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've got the option of a nice warm uh, glass of clam juice. Yeah. Um, doesn't sound very appetising. Oh, about um, some Christmas spivets? Three of them? <laughs> Eggnog, brandy. Hot buttered bum. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, what a trio that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to bed warm. That sounds lovely, James. Lovely. Trio of Christmas spirits. Mm. For you to drink on in uh, the middle of August. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not sitting down in front of a roaring fire for those three. No, you'll be seeing all kinds of things before the bell tolls one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. So when nobody knows your name, we'll be back again next week.